This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Bus Conductor by E.F. Benson. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon for the Hypnagoria podcast. It runs 26 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Bus Conductor by E.F. Benson My friend Hugh Granger and I had just returned from two days' visit in the country, where we had been staying in a house of sinister repute which was supposedly haunted by ghosts of a peculiar, fearsome, and truculent sort. The house itself was all that such a house should be, Jacobean and oak-panelled, with long, dark passages and high, vaulted rooms. It stood also very remote, and was encompassed by a wood of sombre pines that muttered and whispered in the dark. And all the time that we were there, a southwesterly gale with torrents of scolding rain had prevailed, so that by day and night weird voices moaned and fluted in the chimneys. A company of uneasy spirits held colloquy among the trees, and sudden tattoos and tappings beckoned from the window panes. But in spite of these surroundings which were sufficient in themselves, one would almost say, to spontaneously generate a cult phenomena, nothing of any description had occurred. I am bound to add also that my own state of mind was peculiarly well adapted to receive or even to invent the sights and sounds we had gone to seek. For I was, I confess, during the whole time that we were there, in a state of abject apprehension, and lay awake both nights through hours of terrified unrest, afraid of the dark, yet even more afraid of what a lighted candle might show me. Hugh Granger, on the evening of our return to town, had dined with me, and after dinner our conversation, as was natural, soon came back to these entrancing topics. But why do you go ghost-seeking, I cannot imagine, he said. Because your teeth were chattering and your eyes starting out of your head all the time you were there from sheer fright. Or do you like being frightened? Hugh, though generally intelligent, is dense in certain ways. This is one of them. Why, of course I like being frightened, I said. I want to be made to creep and creep and creep. Fear is the most absorbing and luxurious of emotions. One forgets all else if one is afraid. Well, the fact that neither of us saw anything, he said, confirms what I have always believed. And what have you always believed? That these phenomena are purely objective not subjective, and that one's state of mind has nothing to do with the perception that perceives them, nor have circumstances or surroundings anything to do with them either. Look at Osburton, 
It has had the reputation of being a haunted house for years. And it certainly has all the accessories of one. Look at yourself, too, with all your nerves on edge, afraid to look round or light a candle for seeing something. Surely there was the right man in the right place, then, if ghosts are subjective. He got up and lit a cigarette, and looking at him, Hugh is about six feet high, and as broad as he is long, I felt a retort on my lips, for I could not help my mind going back to a certain period in his life, when, from some cause, which, as far as I knew, he had never told anybody, he had become a mere quivering mass of disordered nerves. Oddly enough, at that same moment, and for the first time, he began to speak of it himself. You may reply that it was not worth my while to go either, he said, because I was so clearly the wrong man in the wrong place. But I wasn't. You, for all your apprehensions and expectancy, have never seen a ghost. But I have. Though I am the last person in the world, you would have thought likely to do so. And, though my nerves are steady enough again now, it knocked me all to bits. He sat down again in his chair. No doubt you remember my going to bits, he said. And since I believe that I am sound again now, I should rather like to tell you about it. But before I couldn't, I couldn't speak of it at all to anybody. Yet there ought to have been nothing frightening about it. What I saw was certainly a most useful and friendly ghost. But it came from the shaded side of things. It looked out of the night and the mystery with which life is surrounded. I want to tell you first, quite shortly, my theory about ghost seeing, he continued. And I can explain it best by a simile, an image. Imagine then that you and I, and everybody in the world, are like people whose eye is directly opposite a tiny hole in a sheet of cardboard, which is continually shifting and revolving and moving about. Back to back with that sheet of cardboard is another, which also, by laws of its own, is in perpetual but independent motion. In it, too, there is another hole, and when fortuitously it would seem, these two holes, the one through which we are always looking, and the other in the spiritual plane, come opposite one another, we see through, and then only do the sights and sounds of the spiritual world become visible or audible to us. With most people, these holes never come opposite each other during their life, but at the hour of death they do, and then they remain stationary. That, I fancy, is how we pass over. Now, in some natures, these holes are comparatively large, and are constantly coming into opposition. Clairvoyance, mediums are like that. But as far as I knew, I had no clairvoyant or mediumistic powers at all. 
I therefore am the sort of person who long ago made up his mind that he would never see a ghost. It was, so to speak, an incalculable chance that my minute spy hole should come into opposition with the other. But it did, and it knocked me out of time. I had heard some such theory before, and though Hugh put it rather picturesquely, there was nothing in the least convincing or practical about it. It might be so, or again, it might not. I hope your ghost was more original than your theory, said I, in order to bring him to the point. Yes, I think it was. You shall judge. I put on more coal and poked up the fire. Hugh has got, so I have always considered, a great talent for telling stories, and that sense of drama which is so necessary for the narrator. Indeed, before now, I have suggested to him that he take this up as a profession, sit by the fountain in Piccadilly Circus, when times are, as usual, bad, and tell stories to the passers-by in the street, Arabian fashion, for reward. The most of mankind, I am aware, do not like long stories. But to the few, among whom I number myself, who really like to listen to lengthy accounts of experiences, Hugh is the ideal narrator. I do not care for his theories, or for his similes. But when it comes to facts, to things that happened, I like him to be lengthy. Go on, please, and slowly, I said. Brevity may be the soul of wit, but it is the ruin of storytelling. I want to hear when and where and how it all was, and what you had for lunch, and where you dined, and what Hugh began. It was the 24th of June, just 18 months ago, he said. I had let my flat, you may remember, and come up from the country to stay with you for a week. We had dined alone here. I could not help interrupting. Did you see the ghost here? I asked. In this square little box of a house in a modern street? I was in the house when I saw it. I hugged myself in silence. We dined alone here in Graham Street, he said, and after dinner I went out to some party, and you stopped at home. At dinner your man did not wait, and when I asked where he was, you told me he was ill, and, I thought, changed the subject rather abruptly. You gave me your latch key when I went out, and on coming back, I found you had gone to bed. There were, however, several letters for me, which required answers. I wrote them there and then, and posted them at the pillar-box opposite, so I suppose it was rather late when I went upstairs. You had put me in the front room, on the third floor, overlooking the street, a room which I thought you generally occupied yourself. It was a very hot night, and though there had been a moon when I started to my party, on my return the whole sky was cloud-covered, 
and it looked and felt as if we might have a thunderstorm before morning. I was feeling very sleepy and heavy, and it was not until I had got into bed that I noticed, by the shadows of the window frames on the blind, that only one of the windows was open. But it did not seem worth while to get out of bed in order to open it, though I felt rather airless and uncomfortable, and I went to sleep. What time it was when I awoke, I do not know. But it was certainly not yet dawn, and I never remember being conscious of such an extraordinary stillness as prevailed. There was no sound either of foot passengers or wheel traffic. The music of life appeared to be absolutely mute. But now, instead of being sleepy and heavy, I felt as though I must have slept an hour or two at most, and since it was not yet dawn, Perfectly fresh and wide awake, and the effort which had seemed not worth making before, that of getting out of bed and opening the other window, was quite easy now. And I pulled up the blind, threw it wide open, and leaned out, for somehow I parched and pined for air. Even outside, the oppression was very noticeable, and though, as you know. I am not easily given to feel the mental effects of climate. I was aware of an awful creepiness coming over me. I tried to analyze it away, but without success. The last day had been pleasant. I looked forward to another pleasant day tomorrow, and yet I was full of some nameless apprehension. I felt too dreadfully lonely in this stillness before dawn. Then I heard suddenly, and not very far away, the sound of some approaching vehicle. I could distinguish the tread of two horses walking at a slow foot's pace. They were, though not yet visible, coming up the street, and yet this indication of life did not abate that dreadful sense of loneliness which I have spoken of. Also. In some dim, unformulated way, that which was coming seemed to me to have something to do with the cause of my oppression. Then the vehicle came into sight. At first, I could not distinguish what it was. Then I saw the horses were black, and had long tails, and what they dragged was made of glass. But had a black frame. It was a hearse, empty. It was moving up this side of the street. It stopped at your door. Then the obvious solution struck me. You had said at dinner that your man was ill, and you were, I thought, unwilling to speak more about his illness. No doubt. So I imagined now he was dead, and for some reason, perhaps because you did not want me to know anything about it, you were having the body removed at night. This I must tell you passed through my mind quite instantaneously, and it did not occur to me how unlikely this really was before the next thing happened. I was leaning out of the window. 
and I also remember wondering, yet only momentarily, how odd it was that I saw things, or rather, the thing I was looking at, so very distinctly. Of course, there was a moon behind the clouds, but it was curious how every detail of the hearse and the horses was visible. There was only one man, the driver, with it, and the street was otherwise absolutely empty. It was at him I was looking now. I could see every detail of his clothes, but from where I was, so high above him, I could not see his face. He had on grey trousers, brown boots, a black coat buttoned all the way up, and a straw hat. Over his shoulder there was a strap, which seemed to support some kind of little bag. He looked exactly like, well, from my description, what did he look exactly like? Why, a bus conductor, I said instantly. So I thought, and even while I was thinking this, he looked up at me. He had a rather long, thin face, and on his left cheek there was a mole with a growth of dark hair on it. All this was as distinct as if it had been noonday, and as if I was within a yard of him. But so instantaneous was all that takes so long in the telling, I had not time to think it strange that the driver of the hearse should be so unfunerally dressed. Then he touched his hat to me, and jerked his thumb over his shoulder. Just room for one inside, sir, he said. There was something so odious, so coarse, so unfeeling about this, that I instantly drew my head in and pulled the blind down again, and then, for what reason I do not know, turned on the electric light in order to see what time it was. The hands of my watch pointed to half past eleven. It was then, for the first time, I think, that a doubt crossed my mind as to the nature of what I had just seen. But I put out the light again, got into bed, and began to think. We had dined. I had gone to a party. I had come back and written letters. Had gone to bed and had slept. So how could it be half past eleven? Or what half past eleven was it? Then another easy solution struck me. My watch must have stopped. But it had not. I could hear it ticking. There was stillness and silence again. I expected every moment to hear muffled footsteps on the stairs, footsteps moving slowly and smallly under the weight of a heavy burden. But from inside the house there was no sound whatever. Outside, too, there was the same dead silence, while the hearse waited at the door. And the minutes ticked on and ticked on. And at length I began to see a difference in the light in the room, and knew that dawn was beginning to break outside. But how had it happened then? That if the corpse was to be removed at night, 
it had not gone, and that the hearse still waited when morning was already coming. Presently I got out of bed again, and with the sense of strong physical shrinking, I went to the window and pulled back the blind. The dawn was coming fast. The whole street was lit by that silver, hueless light of morning. But there was no hearse there. Once again I looked at my watch. It was just a quarter past four, but I would swear that not half an hour had passed, since it had told me that it was half past eleven. Then a curious double sense, as if I were living in the present and at the same moment had been living in some other time, came over me. It was dawn on June 25th, and the street, as natural, was empty. But a little while ago, the driver of a hearse had spoken to me, and it was half past eleven. What was that driver? To what plane did he belong? And again, what half past eleven was it that I had seen recorded on the dial of my watch? And then I told myself that the whole thing had been a dream. But if you ask me whether I believed what I told myself, I must confess that I did not. Your man did not appear at breakfast next morning, nor did I see him again before I left that afternoon. I think if I had, I should have told you about all of this. But it was still possible, you see, that what I had seen was a real hearse, driven by a real driver, for all the ghastly gaiety of the face that had looked up to mine, and the levity of his pointing hand. I might possibly have fallen asleep soon after seeing him, and slumbered through the removal of the body and the departure of the hearse. So I did not speak of it to you. There was something wonderfully straightforward and prosaic in all of this. Here were no Jacobean houses, oak-panelled, and surrounded by weeping pine-trees. And somehow the very absence of suitable surroundings made the story more impressive. But for a moment a doubt assailed me. Don't tell me it was all a dream, I said. I don't know whether it was or not. I can only say that I believe myself to have been wide awake. In any case, the rest of the story is odd. I went out of town again that afternoon, he continued, and I may say that I don't think that even for a moment did I get the haunting sense of what I had seen or dreamed that night out of my mind. It was present to me always, as some vision unfulfilled. It was as if some clock had struck the four quarters, and I was still waiting to hear what the hour would be. Exactly a month afterwards I was in London again, but only for the day. I arrived at Victoria about eleven, and took the underground to Sloane Square in order to see if you were in town and would give me lunch. It was a baking hot morning, and I intended to take a bus from the King's Road as far as Graham Street. There was one standing at the corner 
just as I came out of the station. But I saw that the top was full, and the inside appeared to be full also. Just as I came up to it, the conductor, who I suppose had been inside, collecting fares or what not, came out onto the step within a few feet of me. He wore grey trousers, brown boots, a black coat buttoned, a straw hat, and over his shoulder was a strap on which hung his little machine for punching tickets. I saw his face too. It was the face of the driver of the hearse, with the mole on the left cheek. Then he spoke to me, jerking his thumb over his shoulder. Just room for one inside, sir, he said. At that, a sort of panic terror took possession of me, and I knew I gesticulated wildly with my arms and cried, No, no! But at that moment I was not living in the hour that was then passing, but in that hour that had passed a month ago, when I leaned from the window of your bedroom here, just before the dawn broke. At this moment, too, I knew that my spy-hole had been opposite the spy-hole into the spiritual world. What I had seen there had some significance, now being fulfilled, beyond the significance of the trivial happenings of today and tomorrow. The powers of which we know so little were visibly working before me, and I stood there on the pavement, shaking and trembling. I was opposite the post office at the corner, and just as the bus started, my eye fell on the clock in the window there. I need not tell you what the time was. Perhaps I need not tell you the rest, for you probably conjecture it, since you will not have forgotten what happened at the corner of Sloane Square at the end of July, the summer before last. The bus pulled from the pavement into the street, in order to get round a van that was standing in front of it. At the moment there came down the King's Road a big motor going at a hideously dangerous pace. It crashed full into the bus, burrowing into it as a gimlet burrows into a board. He paused. And that's my story, he said. Hi, I'm Jesse. I am Paul. I am Jim. Hi, I am Misa. I am Julie. Hi, I'm Evan. And is there room for one more? Because uh, we got a lot of people on this podcast. <laughs> room for one more, honey. <laughs> Two, four, five, six. Is that is there six people on this bus? There are seven if you count Lord so Dufferin. <laughs> oh. I have I have a few notes, not m many, many, many. Um. But I want to thank Mr. Jim Moon. I'm gonna. I hope you don't mind. I'm gonna steal your audio and put it up front. Uh, yep, no problem. <laughs> cool. Um, I want to thank Mr. Jim Moon, and I, I've written a little something uh, in thank you. Are you ready? Here it is. Jim has has got. So I've always considered a great talent for telling stories, and that sense of drama which is so necessary <laughs> for a narrator. Indeed, before now, I have suggested to him that he should take up this. Take this profession up. Sit by a fountain in Piccadilly Circus when times are, as usual, bad, and tell stories to the passers-by in the street, Arabian fashion, for reward. 
The most, for the most part, sorry, the most part of mankind, I am aware, do not like long stories, but to the few among whom I number myself who really like to listen to lengthy accounts of experiences, Jim is an ideal narrator. <laughs> I do not care for his theories or for his similes, but when it comes to facts, to things that happened, I like him to be lengthy. Well played, Jesse. Well played. Oh, well, well, that was one of my things highlighted. So done. Uh, notice, notice how he says a, it's a lengthy story. It's actually really short. This is a very short story, and the actual story proper, right, where he the this Hugh character tells his story, doesn't actually begin until like three pages in. Yeah. Mm. I like framing devices like that. I mean, I think that's a really important part of it. And uh, I, I hope they seem very common in ghost stories. I mean, this yeah. isn't quite a ghost story, but James did this all the time in his ghost stories. It's always like, well, I think of Turn of the Screw, of course, mm-hmm. but the other one where it's the his other self, right? I think that's also got a similar framing the, device. The Jolly Corner. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I think I, I, going sorry. to the other James, Mr. James, he always said a ghost story should start normally, and there should be like a lead-in mm-hmm. uh, where you sort of set the scene. And James, uh, Mr. James, often uses the device of he's telling you a story that is a story he has heard, and so you get like this frame, which you then step through, and then you're into the story. And it's mm-hmm. kind of he highlight when he what literally wrote about his technique he said you know this was a way of you know you, you get you get you engage your audience by telling it as a personal tale then draw them in and then take them back because he always said a ghost story should have a little bit of history a little bit of distance just a slight haze not too far because no one can relate but you need just to sort of draw them close but sort of also just just to sort of push them in <laughs> sort of into the past as it were or into the realm of story easing them and benson the was a good friend of james so <laughs> Yeah, gets a lot in his stories as well. Well, and I liked that I listened to your reading and your commentary on it. And one of the things I liked was that you tracked back and found that it was actually built on the bones of a very old story. And Mm -hmm. so what he's done in his framing device is said, oh, I'm he's made it more interesting by talking about are ghosts objective or not based on your mm. surroundings? So they're in a very modern setting. Are they, um, how, what is his theory about how you see these things? Which, and I thought, so that all really gets forgotten when they're talking about is there room for one more? But that really enhances it when you're reading the story. It really does. It, it does because it sets up first, it's first, it's a little spooky. Then we're in like, oh, I'm in my, in my own house. It's really nice. And then what? Like, so it goes back and forth before it gets in. Mm-hmm. And this happened in that modern house when no one got told and he didn't even, the guy who's really dying to see a ghost didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one, so. one film adaptation I don't think you mentioned, and I didn't actually watch it, although I was thinking about watching it, uh, is is that Final Destination movie or series sort mm-hmm. of the same mm-hmm. idea? Isn't there like a... <laughs> Yes, Hannah and Rose talked about that movie on More Is More. Oh, I haven't seen I don't it. Know if I've you seen, know that I know podcast, the trailer. I know the premise, right? Um, it, it, but, but it's not that they have a premonition about death, like we have here in the bus conductor and most of the adaptations. It's that they they escape actually go 
escape what they were me- the death they were meant to have, and so death comes after them to try to write the universe. So, so it's, it's a yeah. very different, <laughs> it's a very different sort of deal. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the thrust of this and most of the adaptations is she's foreshadowing her own death. She's having a premonition of her own death, and she manages because of that reinforcement to actually escape her own death. I had not real. I I had seen this Twilight Zone episode many times over the years. I hadn't quite realized it was it was uh, connected to the bus conductor. Well, one of the weird things about uh, the episode is that at the end, all the, all everything's written in backwards. Oh no, no, re- that's that's just oh. the way they uploaded it to Daily Motion. Oh, um, oh, the, the version <laughs> I have, you know, the original is not, and nothing's backwards. It's just that's, oh, oh, that's oh. one of the ways they. I, do I, the, I thought that was the, an interesting effect on their part the al- keep, algorithm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> because we keep seeing the twenty-two backwards. I thought that was a callback, but no. Go going back, it's like I'd seen this episode many times before. It's like. That's that's an interesting. I I never thought of this as I've never thought of this whole idea as a ghost story. I think as like a premonition, psychic foreshadowing of yeah. one's own death and right. escaping yeah. escaping the fate that's been set out for you. you know, seeing what's happening and just being so scared by it, but you actually managed to escape what what is de- what you're destined to uh to fall to, which I which is which is a really hopeful story. Yes, she's scared throughout, but. Or, or in, in the main story, he's scared throughout, but he manages to escape the the tragic fate by, by his his fear saves his life. Well, he he says a most useful and friendly ghost. Right. Um, I I was uh, looking at um the the description of the ghost and or the conductor, and um in in talking about like the friendly positive part of it, um I read that in the 17th century England, a mole with a hair poking out of it was considered good fortune. <laughs> okay. Well, the Chinese still believe that, I think. Wow. Yeah, I, I read that yeah, too. <laughs> see people who, who keep, you know, they don't pluck the hair, or, you know, and it's like considered good luck. So especially men, they'll, they'll they're like, they're proud of these really long hairs. <laughs> wow. That's an aesthetic mm. to go for, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. the yeah. I, I don't know if it's seen as attractive. It seems as good luck. You're leaning into it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this thing. Here's what I say. Everybody go along with it. It reminds me, um, there's that actor, famous actor with a hair lip. Um, what's his name? He was Stacy Keach. That's him. Um, I didn't realize oh, yeah. he had one because he, was always, he always had a mustache. And then one day, you know, after his show has been off for 20 years or whatever, I'm like, what what's wrong? Did he have a like an accident? What's wrong? Did he shave shave his mustache badly? And I'm like, oh, he has he had a hair lip, which is very unusual, right? Um, it's very convenient to be able to grow it, a hair lip over your mustache. I guess it works for men, but uh, yeah, works for I, women I, too, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> grow a hair lip over your mustache. Hmm. <laughs> I think I screwed that up somehow. But uh, I, I I was struck by the the guy's appearance as well and uh, I think the way they do it in the um, in the Twilight Zone adaptation with the with the lady at the elevator she's sinister and she oh, yeah. seems sinister at first uh, when she's uh, on the aircraft but when she closes the door and that smile is in a slightly different context it's like she's like is there something wrong with that lady? <laughs> <laughs> and she's not. She has no 
she has no menace to her. And then I was thinking, like, can you... It's it's like that I've got this app that I keep downloading to play with, uh, Face App, where you can just, for free, you can take a photo and just put a smile on somebody's face. So I do this, uh, you know, all these HP Lovecraft photos where he's just looking very dour or Edgar Allan Poe, where he's just like sitting there. And then I, I put a fake smile on them and it makes me laugh like hilariously, right? Cause, and that, but the thing is, is that smile changes the whole face in a way that in, in, in the Twilight Zone adaptation, she's a menace all the way through. Right, every time, the both times we see her, and then the third time when we see her, she's she seems to be a menace as well. But that smile is curiosity, like what what's going on here? She doesn't know she doesn't know she's a ghost, right? She's yeah. she's mm-hmm. absolutely not a threat, and that made me think of a story uh, that is connected to this one. I think, at least in some way, I keep think I kept thinking of this as a ghost story, but Maybe it's not a ghost story at all, right? It's more, maybe it is. It shouldn't even be classified that way. Maybe um, I wouldn't, because uh, I was thinking of the Yellow Sign by Robert W. Chambers. Oh, I thought of, I thought Ooh, of the Yellow Sign a lot during this. Story. Yeah, so that uh, Mesa, maybe you don't know that one. It's um, mm-hmm. it's about an artist who's painting in his loft, his artist loft. He's, I think his his model slash girlfriend is either in the other room or whatever and he he just looks out the window and he sees this this uh, i want to say hearse driver uh in the lot next door um and when he looks at him he thinks that something wrong with that guy and then i can't remember any more of the story <laughs> she had the same dream no i think he he tells the story seeing this weird guy right and she had the same dream so this really freaks her out right and, and then he's kind of like calmed down. It's just a coincidence, you know. Or I think maybe he had a dream, uh, you know, next day or something. I don't know. And she's really freaked out about it. But it also has the the like this image of of you riding the hearse, of the dead body on the hearse mm-hmm. being carried. And so the dream is, I think, the dream as she tells it is he's it's him lying in a hearse. And right. she, I think, she dreamed that she was this artist lying in the hearse being rode along, you know, in the casket. And it's a really interesting to think of it as a weird, thinking this as a weird story rather than a ghost story. But mm-hmm. I, I had it in, throughout the whole week, I had it in my mind as a ghost story. And I, I just don't think that's true anymore. But um, one of the things that I think made me think it's a ghost story is I was, I was going to say it to Julie, because I think, I think this was your idea for a show, Julie. Yes, um, it was. Yeah. So I, I was thinking... Uh, this is uh, I don't understand why Julie loves this story as much as she does because I like this story but it's not like uh, Mr. Jim Moon has done a lot of shows right so why did she pick this one out and yet I remember when Mr. Jim Moon did this show it was a long time ago right several years yeah yeah um, I, I, I went and found that movie the 1945 movie called Dark of Night is that what it's called Dead of Night Dead of Night okay so Dead mm. of Night and then watching that I noticed that actually the whole movie is sort of structured based on this story as well, not just the opening oh. sequence. Did you guys <laughs> notice that? There's a house, yeah. yes. right? And there's and then they each tell stories, and then there's a he has this dream explanation for how he knows stuff, and 
this week, I also was processing a, an issue of Ghost Stories, which is a sort of a shitty version of Weird Tales. Uh, really, really, <laughs> shit, really shitty writing in it. Um, I saw your, your comments on Twitter on, on some yeah, of the stories. Bernard Mc, yeah, Bernard McFadden, this, this nut job who's anti-vaxxer, he, he's a hilarious character. He started his own religion, which is based on bodybuilding. <laughs> what? Exactly. <laughs> it's the craziest stuff. He had four wives and uh, eight kids, and uh, he he faked his what a figures in a giant newspaper, uh, a giant magazine, Liberty. Um, he was friend friends and enemies with FDR. Um, all sorts of weird things going on. But this magazine is it's basically it's got this tension between we want to buy your ghost stories. But you got to stop sending in fake sto- uh, stories that are stolen from other stories. <laughs> they have an advertisement <laughs> in the thing saying, we absolutely will report you for stealing other people's stories. And you're going to be in trouble. Stop doing it. <laughs> they had an EF Benson in there this uh, two weeks ago. I got one with an EF Benson called the Flint, Flint Knife. Um, so it's not that there, there are only bad stories in there. It's just the ones that are written originally for, generally originally written for ghost stories are terrible. Um, th- there's a there's a number that are stolen from, uh, you know, reprints. Um, although th- that same problem happened in Weird Tales early on too. There, somebody wrote a um, took a, a very famous ghost story and a very good ghost story. Uh, called, uh, it's got a bunch of names, but uh, An Apparition by Guy de Montpassant, which is about oh, a... Oh, yes. Uh, it's about a cavalry officer in France who asks a friend of his... No, a friend asks uh, the main character, who's a cavalry officer, to go to his house and get some papers out of his desk because he, he can't bear to go back there because his wife is dead. So he goes there, and there's a lady in the house, and she says, brush my hair. uh, weird tales had a a ripoff of that uh called the tortoise shell comb um and it's like wait a second all you did was take the guida bonpassant story uh change a few details and set it as a third person story instead of a a first person story and that is like oh just a really weird way to steal right so this problem uh i was thinking this is a ghost story and I was encouraged of thinking of it as a ghost story because in looking through Ghost Stories magazine, almost every picture in uh, if this particular issue had photos, retouched photos for illustrations, which is very unusual for a fiction magazine, right? And one of the, what do they do is they'd have these beds. Almost every story had an illustration with somebody lying in bed and then some <laughs> ghost appearing to them. Right, and it's very interesting that this has that exact same framework. So, I was thinking when I was going to talk to Mr. Jim Moon about his his recording it, how come you didn't talk about the name of your show, which is Hypnagoria, right? What <laughs> the idea of the borderline between ghosts and dream being really connected, right? Sleep paralysis is a real thing that. I I think I've experienced and is that what that word means? Well, it's sort of no. What's the <laughs> hypnagoria mean? I just thought Mr. it was. Yeah. What is hypnagoria? Well, it's a play on hypnagogia, which is um, um, that's a state you enter before you actually fall asleep. 
okay. if you if you leap, lie on your back and lie with your hand, one arm sort of propped up at the elbow, and then relax and drift into sleep. Um, what happened, when you hit fully sleep, your muscles relax, the arm falls and wakes you up, but it'll give you a memory of that state in entering sleep, uh, and where. And they've done a lot of research on this because it's an interesting zone of consciousness where people often experience auditory hallucinations. They'll see faces um, oh. float above them. Even though the, the, their eyes are closed, they'll actually have the, the, the sense of being able to see the room around them. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and all sorts of weird okay. landscapes start to appear. And um, it is just like a, a, the prelude to, prelude to sleep. Uh, yeah, I've had you, I've had this. It's kind of really disturbing to have those sorts of hallucinations. It's just, yeah. It, Once oh, again, <laughs> I find I'm completely normal. Thank goodness, <laughs> because I do this practically every night. Although yeah, yeah. I might disqualify myself because I'm lying on my side, but I'm holding a book. Mm. So it's when I drop the book yeah. <laughs> that my husband's like, turn your light off. But that's when I go, oh, I was asleep, and I kind of remember what I was dreaming. But thank goodness, no. Uh, faces, no voices. Oh, I hear voices. Yeah. I I did want to say, Jesse, um, I didn't suggest this because I love this story so much, though I do quite enjoy it. And I love E.F. Benson's ghost stories in general. Mm-hmm. He wrote such a range like, um, oh gosh, there's one about the long gallery that is it's in one hand so funny because it's about a family that lives in the most haunted house in England and they know all the ghosts intimately. Well, I was talking that, to the uh, How fear uh, 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 left it. the long gallery. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've mm. got such a good memory mm. for names or I have a terrible one, but, um, and, but there is a room that's super spooky and that part is very spooky. And so anyway, but he, and, and then he wrote, you know, the caterpillar one, and then he, which might be called Caterpillar. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then he wrote this, which is kind of an in-between, really. And But the thing, the reason I recommended this is because we had just talked about the monkey's paw. So that's mm. a class that's passed on in so many ways. And mm. this, I thought, until I listened to Mr. Jim Moon's background, I thought this was actually the origin of this story that has passed on into our culture in so many ways. Mm. And, and essentially, it really is the kind of the starting point, I think, for it springing out and being noticed a lot. But anyway, mm. so that was – and it's a good story, too. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten the framing device, which to me made it much better. Yeah, I love the frame. Mm. I, I um, want to point out uh, – sorry, my, uh, my um, I want to point ahead, out I'll, I'll, yeah. just the fact that um, – uh, you know, that falling asleep with your hand thing. Um, I learned not to do that because uh, I did it with my phone once. <laughs> it was right in front of my face. I woke up oh, no. uh, hitting my nose. I'm like, wow, why did I do that? So now, this I is now, why you lie on your side. That, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, famously, Edison was said to do this to um, try to spur ideas. He would sit in a chair um with a with a ball in his hand like a metal ball bearing in his hand and there would be like a one of those pans for panning for gold uh on his uh, just to the right of the chair and he'd hold the ball in his hand and fall asleep and then the ball would hit the ground the the pan and make this horrible noise and he'd wake up and this is one of those stories that i heard about edison being you know trying to come up with ideas for his his inventions uh, or solve certain problems. I, I do mm. find um, a lot of times that state to be um, very 
uh, manipulable. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it's not it's not just falling asleep too. It's also awaking, isn't it, Mr. Jim? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's a similar waking state, but the okay. thing is, it takes um, waking is very rapid in right. physiological terms. Right. Going to sleep is a lot longer. Okay. Um, if I remember rightly, um, it's it's a uh, it's easy to get out of sleep, but harder to get into it, mm-hmm. or, or getting into dreaming rather is probably mm-hmm. closer to closer to the truth because you have to go through so your brain actually adjusts wavelengths, and you often have like after hypnagogia, you have what you call your non-rapid eye movement dreams that are terribly grey, and they're all the dreams you have where you're doing humdrum stuff that mm-hmm. is like a grey version of your real life, and you're just walking down corridors or just doing some task over and over again, and then you go through that, then you get into the like fully fledged, you know, technical dreaming, you know, the rapid eye movement sleep. Mm-hmm. Cool. Misa, sorry I cut you off there. Oh, I was going to say that I, I don't pro- think it's a ghost story per se either, but but it did remind me uh, a little bit of um, of a famous ghost story, um, uh, A Christmas Carol. At one point, hmm. um, at one point he says, um, I pulled up the blind, threw it wide open, leaned <sighs> out, yeah. and somehow parched pine for air. And right before that he said, uh, the music of light was absolutely mute so so when scrooge comes he goes running to the window i he says i running to the window he opened it put his head out no fog no mist clear bright jovial stirring mm-hmm. cold and then he goes oh glorious glories and the dancing sunlight so it's like it's like that same moment but mm-hmm. but totally backwards you know scrooge throws open the window after seeing ghosts of the past present future and and the, and then this one he's just about to start seeing the ghosts but they both completely um change their lives hmm. yeah i know yeah. like the, that the weather in this story is following the this traditional 19th century method right it's reflective of of the characters moods and ideas and concepts and and also benson's very meta about that in the in the um uh the frame um, and actually, I noted, I believe it's in here twice, and uh, I noted it because I'm familiar with the story of the same name. He says the words suitable surroundings, right? He says, we were in this, uh, I'll just read it. My friend Hugh Granger and I had just returned from a Christmas visit in the country where we had been staying in a house of sinister repute which was supposed to be haunted by ghosts of a particularly fearsome and truculent sort. So hmm. it, it, that's why we think of it as a ghost story, at least at first, is because he's setting it up to be a ghost story, right? But mm-hmm. actually, um, this idea of... of I, I think this is better classified as a weird tale um, in, that, in that all that that means... Um, which is, you know, not generally, although sleep can be involved in it, it's not generally as tied to sleep as as ghost tales, as you point out rightly, um, Isa, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is a sleep ghost story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've got uh, a story by Ambrose Bierce called The Suitable Surroundings from 1889, and then ex- explicitly... Um, H.P. Lovecraft uses this same um, setup for the cool air. You you guys know this story? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a he's uh, I don't have it handy. I'll dig it out. But um, 
he opens it saying uh, something to the effect of, uh, you don't need to be in suitable surroundings in order to have a scary <laughs> a scary story. <laughs> in fact, I'll tell you one where it happened in the middle of the city and it was completely whatever. Here, I'll just... Using appliances. Yeah. You know, modern electrical or whatever, you know. It goes like this. You asked yeah. me to explain why I'm afraid of a draft of cool air, why I shiver more than others upon entering a cold room and seeing seem nauseated and repelled and chilled of of evening creeps through the heat of a mild autumn day. There are those who say I respond to cold as others do to a bad odor, and I am the last to deny that impression. Um, and then the second paragraph starts, It is a mistake to fancy that horror is associated inextricably with darkness, silence, and solitude. I found it in the glare of a mid-afternoon, in the clangor of a metropolis, amongst the teeming masses uh oh midst of a shabby commonplace rooming house with a prosaic landlady and two stalwart men by my side in the spring of 1923 right so you don't in order to have a ghostly or ghastly experience you don't need to be in a haunted house which is a whole thread of stories right including like hg wells's um uh, maybe it's punctuated by hg wells's the red room which is about a skeptic going into a house oh, with yeah. a gun in order to disprove the theory that ghosts are there, right? And yeah, it's a it's a whole tradition. It of, is. Of, it, oh, oh, I, I'm thinking of uh, the the movie The Room 1408. Yeah. Room 1408. That's where uh, where, where you have King, a skeptic. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We have a skeptic that winds up coming across face to face with a real haunted room for a change. It's right. Like, that idea of the suitable surroundings not being necessary. Um, is really interesting to me. And I think his explanation, uh, well, it's not actually uh, Benson's explanation to, as to how you sometimes get insight, right, into what is behind the curtain, although they, I don't think he uses the curtain or the veil in here exactly. He says, we're looking through a card, uh, a hole in a card, our whole lives we look through a tiny hole in a cardboard a uh, piece of cardboard, and there's another piece of cardboard that's moving rapidly, and I guess the picture of reality is on that. And then every once in a while, those it has a hole in it too. Every once in a while, the two holes line up, and you see things for as they are. Right. I love that. I was so me so, too. It's a very yeah. good uh, fake crappy explanation for that's how that's that, what i thought of the story though like and I, it didn't mm-hmm. even occur to me that it was a ghost story until you started talking about it. that's what i thought it was right it was right. A, uh, a conjunction of, of realms interspassing by each other in that way it's very similar to lord dunsany's story about the window oh so yes the magic window yeah um what is that i read it very very good show on it um uh, the wonderful window, that's what it's called. Wonderful window. And yeah, just this, uh, some, some aperture <laughs> that lets you see into a different space. And I did like Benson's comment that now sometimes the holes are pretty large and you can constantly right. see through them. And that's the clairvoyance and the mediums. And I went, Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> those are those people. So I, I loved his little, because it wasn't really an explanation. He just said, this is how I think of it. Mm-hmm. And that's really and what he's giving the us. The narrator this is how actually I think dismisses it. it. He says, that's ridiculous. 
right? But it's yeah. his friend telling it. So uh, we get to have it both ways, right? Benson's explanation and then Benson undercutting that explanation. And then he also says that we don't see it uh, reality. Well, I'm, this is my interpretation. We don't see reality as it is or uh, whatever until the moment of death. And that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, Hughes theory and then right. we pass that's what passing through is right and I, I i was helping my niece with an essay um and she wanted she used the word pass away and i'm like don't use that word here it's, <laughs> it's it has also it's a baggage you need to use dead or died right um mm-hmm. uh, just w- when you're composing an essay is like composing a poem you, you're trying to go for certain effects and you don't want to bring that baggage into it but it's always struck me that the phrase pass away is like a leftover from the spiritualist age, right? Um, because it's a, such a euphemism for a, a harsh a harsh truth. I, I don't but, think that necessarily. It's just, you well, know, you a euphemism. It's polite, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I know it's just no, people it's, say like life slipped away or life drained right, away. Right, it's, right. I think it's more... Go, go, it certainly predates spiritualism passed away. No, yeah, no, no, I, uh, no but I think mm. it comes to that height mm. of, of like, the, the, the funny thing, the popularity of ghost stories, you know, they're still around and people are still telling them, but this one starts off as a ghost story, right? It says, I'm a, I went to a haunted house to see ghosts, and that dead of night is... Uh, done up as a ghost story but actually this is i think much more close to a weird tale and they're they're early in my podcasting uh uh, for this podcast i did a show on a algernon blackwood story that just baffles baffled me completely i like what's going on here i don't get it it's sort of before i really got into the weird tale as a as a phenomenon it's called accessory before the fact it's a 1914 story you know this one (laughs) i i do, oh, 1911. Uh, it's it's usually collected in a, uh, a book called Ten Minute Stories or something by Algernon Blackwood, um, and it's it's basically this. It's a guy goes for a walk and he passes. I'm going from memory. This is from nine years ago or whatever. But uh, a guy goes for a walk. He passes somebody on his journey, um, and Reality seems a bit weird. You know, the nature, reality, romanticism, countryside walk thing seems a little bit weird. And he, I guess I want to say he, he saw the future. Um, and whatever happened is, is, it's like what this story is saying is that we're not seeing reality. Well, this is my interpretation. We're not seeing reality as it is. Um, most of the time, we're just seeing the way it's conveniently operating most of the time and that so when we get into states like a hypnagogic state or um uh whatever is the one when you're waking up uh that you're seeing like or like a schizophrenic right you're seeing reality um differently and that's why people don't engage with it in this you know they they can't accept it these borderline cases is is kind of like I just didn't get it that original Blackwood story. And now I'm think I'm I think I get it better. That that's what's really going on. It's about seeing seeing. Um, it's not even destiny, right? It's a glimpse of of reality as it's happening. Is is that no, what the story's about? I, no, 
I think I think I think it's about destiny and fate and what and a premonition of the future and but the future is not set in stone and, and yeah. He, yeah and, and she's she's able he's able to escape. But the only reason thing. he's able he or she is able to escape is because of this actual uh, half premonition, tip right? <laughs> tip yeah. off, yeah. And the tip yeah. off is not is not because you're special. Or that a witch mm. cast a spell on you, or you drank a special potion. It's just happenstance that uh, the, mm. ho- the it's a whole random blip out. that yeah. you're the one yeah. who saw it. It's, yeah. it's a it's a glitch in it's a glitch in reality or whatever you want to put it. Oh, just just so you know, I I looked up passed away in in Google in books, and it first became popular in the 1850s and 60s. Dropped off a bit. Came more popular in the 1920s. Dropped off a bit, and mm-hmm. now it's more popular than ever as far as a term. <laughs> we love our. Sure, no one wants to think about death. <laughs> That's right. We love to hide it. Well, it's all hidden away. Yeah, it's all hidden yeah. away. So you don't want to use the actual word. And Soften I also blow. kind of avoid the word, not for the reasons you thought. But if you're talking directly to someone who's just experienced a severe loss, you're not going to slap them in the face, man. And that's they know what happened. Yeah. Um, and that's where you're gauging it. You know, you, you can say, I'm sorry, so-and-so died. But, you know, you just want to be gentle with them at that time. So, you know. So what did the Puritans say? Yeah. I, it just well, went, what did I, the Puritans I, say when someone died? That's what I wonder. If it didn't I, take I, off until the 1850s, your they father would have been probably pretty brutal. <laughs> and they were religious. They they believed in the eternal yeah. soul and all that, but they were probably pretty brutal. He's with God yeah. now. Their terminology. Oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. He's with God now would be a good one. Yeah. Gone to his rest is another old one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, this happened to me when I was young. My my father was in hospital, and my mom had to give us the talk. Your father's dead. I don't mm. remember what she said, but I remember knowing even before the conversation happened what it was going to be about. Right. Right. Um, not because yeah. I had some premonition, but rather I could sort of see the the path we were on. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was. I don't. I don't think. <laughs> she could have made it any worse by, by uh, I, I don't remember what she said, but uh, it would have been it would have been pretty hard to make it any worse than it was. But uh, it, I see I see the well, the power of euphemisms are used constantly as a metaphor for, and that, uh, I think that let me read you something. Oh, metaphor is very important because we. We're, we really do live in metaphor. Like, in reality, we live in metaphor. So, right. Um, when I wanted you can to see go further it back. as a raw rather than as a metaphor, I think that that is, it's always interesting to try and see things not as metaphor. Sorry. Go for it. Well, no, I'm, and I'm sorry I interrupted. I, I kept thinking you were done and you weren't. I apologize. Um, but <laughs> you I, it know made me, me by think... now, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I was just interrupting because we all know me by now. So, <laughs> um, but it made me talking about what did the Puritans think, and I was thinking about this as metaphor. But you know, a lot of times, as you're saying, Jesse, that metaphor is talking about our internal state. So, mm-hmm. this is from H. V. Morton, a traveler in Rome. H. V. Morton just wrote these amazing travel books back in the day, and um, so like the maybe 40s and 50s and so forth. But he went. He would do things like he'd wrote books um, also like in the steps of the master. So he'd go travel around, 
you know, the Holy Land. And so he's commenting on times back when Jesus was alive, because that's who he's following. But he's also, in his own commentary, is giving us a window into that time period in that place. So there are wonderful double looks at those places. And he was in the catacombs. And he says, the atmosphere is one of faith and trust. The epitaphs carved on the tombs are happy and confident, as if the dead were waving goodbye and smiling as they left for a journey. The words rest and sleep are everywhere. I could not remember once having seen that word farewell, which sighs its hopeless way through all pagan cemeteries. As I remembered the dark galleries... The image came into my mind of a troop ship in the dark with its rows of bunks, their occupants sleeping, confidently awaiting the light of a new day. So for him, so of course, for the Christian dead, he's talking about rest and sleep because, you know, life was hard and you were looking forward to heaven. But also for him in his time period, this is what it communicates at that time as he's thinking about it. You know, they're confidently, they're sleeping. They're just awaiting the light of a new day. And I, it's, again, that double look of from his time period, how does he interpret it, their own words, um, which uh, Jim Moon, you made me think of from when you were saying, you know, they're resting now or they're resting with God. So, anyway. Well, so, uh, there's an older story that I think um, has an influence on this one as well that has a similar premonition, though, but it's not kind of like, how we do premonitions and psychic flashes now where someone actually gets a, like a snippet of what's going to happen. They get something, a figure that's metaphorical and oblique. Um, and that's the signal one by Charles Dickens. Oh yeah. However, in that yeah. story, yeah. um, the guy who's the, uh, the, the titular signal man who is seeing the ghost with the mm-hmm. hands in a particular figure waving, he, he doesn't realize its significance. It's actually, the narrator who he talks to puts that together and realizes what the nature of the ghost was, that it isn't some phantom from the past. It was a phantom from the future. Yeah. <laughs> and that's such a powerful story. So well told. Yeah. That, so short. That, that is also, <laughs> uh, it's interesting because that that's considered a ghost story as well. Right. Um, so ghost. Well, the, as, the thing is on, on this, we, in the late 20th century, we, we developed genres of fiction that didn't exist when the likes of Benson mm. were writing. And we likewise, we've, because of movies and comics and stuff, we have very definite ideas of what is a ghost, what is a zombie, what's a Martian, mm. what you know. And we've mm. sort of gamified them almost. <laughs> we have kind of like a set idea of different races. Mm-hmm. And much the same way as Tom. the Monster took- Manual now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which way Tolkien took the idea of fairy folk and then turned them into like hobbits, dwarves, and elves as like demi-human races. Whereas in actual, you know, fairy law, the difference between an elf and a dwarf is well, depending on who's telling the story. <laughs> uh, and likewise, ghosts. I mean, um, this this story, this Benson story, is very similar to a supposedly real story experienced by Lord Dufferin who was in, you know, a nobleman, and as posh people did, they went to stay to each other's houses, and he was at a house in Ireland, and he looked out one night and saw a man carrying a coffin, a very strikingly unpleasant-looking man. It terrified him, <laughs> and then this figure disappeared. Then a few years later, in Paris, he went to a hotel and saw the bellboy operating the elevator was the same man, and he thought, 
I'm not getting in that. <laughs> and rightly so, because the elevator crashed. Mm-hmm. Oh, but um, this, this, is a, this story you just told, it, it's probably one of the first like horror stories I ever read. Because mm. now this is kind of a, a later adaptation of it. But this, that, that exact story where you see the, well, I think in this version, it's, you see the hearse driver. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you see the same hearse driver in the elevator. And then he says there's room for one more. And then, of course, you don't get on it. One of these is in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, mm-hmm. which I read when I was like seven, eight years old. It was like probably the first anthology of scary stories I read. They had the Alvin Schwartz. Do you know this anthology? Yes. yes. Yeah. With the yeah, creepy picture. Nice that's why we checked it out because it had those really creepy yeah. pictures <laughs> in it. I think that's why sometimes we get banned from elementary school libraries or things. But <laughs> it has that story, room for one more. And so there's a good chance this is... You know, when I read that, when I read this story, I'm like, "This is that room for one North North story I, I read when I was a kid." Mm-hmm. Just, just adapted differently. In fact, Mr. Oh. Jim Moon's show, he didn't call it the bus conductor, right? He called it "Room for One More." Yes, yeah, because that, that that's what the the line that everybody remembers is, right? It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what the medium is, whether it's an aircraft, an elevator, or a a bus. Right. right, or even a hearse, or, 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 or a train, or a train. I just thought of a Twilight Zone episode where the where the guy doesn't escape his fate. You remember a stop at Willoughby's? No. Anyone? No. Okay, so it's a Twilight Zone episode where this guy keeps having a dream where he's on a train. He gets off at this beautiful, wonderful town. And it's called Willoughby's, and he keeps having this dream, and he's she's trying to figure out where this actual little town is because he's convinced it's real, and eventually he dies, and the name of the hearse. The funeral home is full of these. So it's kind of like the reverse of this one. It's like, he doesn't escape his fate. It's a premonition of his really actually going to die. It's a really, it's, it's, it's a nice counterpoint to 22 and to uh, the bus conductor thereby where, where he sees it, he sees it coming, but doesn't realize it like we were talking before. And it turns out, yeah, to eventually consume him. I was, I was trying to track down my, uh, my, I do a lot of philosophizing on, Twitter, you know, I studied philosophy at <laughs> university. Um, so I, 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 uh, I write down my dreams, I put them in Twitter. I write down my jokes, I put them in Twitter. I, I, so I searched up euphemism and metaphor, uh, and I found a <laughs> back and forth with um, Mr. Jim Moon and uh, Misa <laughs> from uh, an ad in Weird Tales, April 1923. Uh, the ad says, oh, uh, sorry, it's not an ad. It's a little, I don't know, editorial filler. Did Solomon give Queen of Sheba an airship? <laughs> he certainly did, according what? to an ancient Abyssinian manuscript entitled The Glory of Kings, and recently translated by blah, 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 blah. And then the last line is, Theosophists, however, believe that there were airships a million years ago in lost Atlantis. <laughs> what is, okay, so then. what is Mr. Jim Moon says? Euphemism. <laughs> Jesse says, "I'm afraid to ask for what." And then my sister says, "Oh my, <laughs> I still don't know the answer to this one." But um, uh, if you if if you read um, the Bible, like I never did when I was a kid, but I read it now. Um, little snippets here and there because I'm I, I I hear these. Um, the Bible too long for you to read an audiobook, Jesse? 
you know what? It's just it's too dense, and you need to look at different interpret. Oh, it's really dense, right? I mean, Agreed. You need to sort of uh, look at different, not spellings, different um, translations, translations, and then and commentary, commentary to go with absolutely. it in context. Yeah. Um, and then, so like I was just looking at the story where because. Uh, uh, we were writing, uh, helping my niece write an essay, and I was saying, you need a metaphor here. Um, and I said, let he without sin cast the first stone. And I'm like, okay, that's from the Bible, that's Jesus. Um, <laughs> but going and looking at the exact, exact uh, story, one of the, the things... The woman caught in adultery. Right, with a woman caught... Yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of characters in the Bible who don't have actual names, right? Noah's wife and all that, but... Um, right. the, the important part in that story, to me, was not what Jesus ah. says, but the fact that he won't answer right away, and he's scratching in the dirt, like, writing yeah. or something. And I'm like... That's big. How come nobody talks about that part when they say say this story? Because that is... It's all metaphor, right? So if uh, there's this lady who did a recent translation of the Odyssey, um, looking at... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember her name, but Emily maybe is her first name. She's on a Emily lot of Hughes, maybe. Maybe she she's on a lot of podcasts. She just was on the um, uh, partially examined life podcast talking about the Odyssey and um, the way the gods play a role in people's lives. And well, you know, people do all these sacrifices to the gods and they completely ignore them. And then when somebody does something, Emily Wilson. Emily Wilson, that's her. Yeah. So she she she's doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of translating in a different way on purpose a lot of the things that are sort of badly or not badly translated just traditionally translated um, and it it makes me think about how important it is to why why these stories like uh, let he is without sin cast the first stone is an important story is because it doesn't actually tell the answer right. The, all the men leave who are trying to get this woman stoned. Um, wait, wait I don't know what do you mean the, about it doesn't tell the answer. It, it doesn't say it doesn't have a moral at the end saying. Um, and you're and, kidding, right? Uh-oh. Of course it does, Julie. <laughs> it just doesn't say it, right? We know it what does. the moral is, right? We. Well, That's least, the, you just said the moral. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And nobody Let stones her. Right, because everybody's got a sin. Right, and they all left. Right. So then the end of it is that's not the end of the story, though. No, okay, he talks to her, right? Right, and he, she says, he says, so no who's condemned no you? And she said, no one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. You know, go and sin no more. And so right. this is God's mercy, God's love. Um, but our own responsibility, and that's why a lot yeah, of the that's interpretation, Julie. That that that's the point. Is the end and the end of the story. Um, it doesn't say, and this means that. So you have to go to the commentaries to do that, or you have to look oh, look within. I or think. Whatever. And isn't wouldn't you take the last line? What else would you take those last lines to mean? Well, that's that's my point. Is that this this story, the bus conductor, does the same kind of job, right? And that's why it has the same kind of resonance. I think is that it, you know that people will go in and steal it and redo it as their own story, or uh, or even that he's crystallizing it in a certain way um, from previous mm. stories, right? That the, there's a kind of truth that is being approached at with a metaphor. But 
if you, as as I would, or because this is a story about something that happened to Jesus, the Pharisees are trying to catch him. Right. Does he go with Roman law? Does he go with Judaic law? Either way, he's screwed. Right. And he finds a different way. And so you're right that part of the key is what's he writing in the dust? Are they reading it? Right. Is he just writing to himself? Is he writing the Ten Commandments? Is he writing their sins out? No one knows because the wind blows that dust away, right? right? right. That's my own. Now, that is my gloss, right? You can take right. that and that's where it's open for you to think about because that's the point of a story. But if this story really happened and we say Jesus is in history and they're telling this story because it happened, his words are meant to mean something and those aren't open to um, those are open. If you're saying that I'm going to retell this story and I'll tell it my way, <laughs> then you're doing that interpretation. Yes. Right. But the story, the very story that we're talking about is the original story. So what's in there is meant for us to take away as these words are what we're supposed to take. I'm, I'm confused. Are you talking about the bus conductor or the <laughs> no? The, okay, you know fine. what I'm okay. talking. No, no, about. I, I was genuinely confused. <laughs> talking about Jesus and the okay. woman in adultery and yeah. all this kind of thing. Yeah, so um, you're not retelling that story. If even E.F. Benson's retelling the story, right, right. But the but the one you're saying is so open to interpretation because I'm interpreting it and all this stuff. In my own life, I'll interpret it, but the words of the story are there for us to look at and say, "Jesus, if Jesus is God, as Christians would tell you, whether or not anybody's a Christian, that's the point of this story for, written down for those people. Right, but it's uh, it, uh, the, the words are there for us to see. However, the words that Jesus writes are not, you know, <laughs> in the, in the uh, that, that's the cool part, right, is, is that mm-hmm. the story is so, inv- so inviting to the reader uh, or the hearer of it, that you have, you have to say what's going on there, and then you, it draws you in, like this story does. What's going on there, and the way it ends, right? This one ends, uh, and that is my story, he said, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no uh, follow-up that says, and of course, the this means this, and that it's all psychological, <laughs> right? By the way, um, I spent. Uh, about eight hours yesterday trying to get the pictures from the original publication of of this in in the Pall Mall magazine, December 1906. I have the issue, and uh, Google deleted all the pictures from the entire volume. I spent so wow. much time trying to get behind paywalls and all sorts of things to go through old eBay auctions and websites, mm-hmm. uh, but... There's a bunch of beautiful illustrations, presumably by a, a very famous artist at the time, A. Wallace Mills, completely blanked out. So now I've, I've got I've got the paper in front of me, reading it and saying, I wonder what's in that picture. It says, "You, for all your apprehension and expectancy, have never seen a ghost." And there's this giant space on the page <laughs> where it could be a beautiful picture. Wow. The next page. There's a quote that says, just room for one more, uh, just room for one inside, <laughs> sir, he said, and a big empty space. Mm. I want to see that guy, right? Next page, nothing. And then there's one on page 725. I expected every moment to hear muffled footsteps on the stairs. This is sort of a long, tall one. I, I I'm almost want to <laughs> fill them in myself, right? And then the last page, right after that, and that's my story, he said. There's a... Uh, final caption at the bottom, it says, it crashed full into the bus. And it's wide enough so that I'm picturing it, right? There's the bus on the right. 
and there's the guy standing on the left looking in horror as it <laughs> as it crashes. It's a big blank space, but that's the power of the story and the emptiness on the page that I'm filling it all in. Oh man. Also, he never did say there's room for one more, did he? Just room for one inside. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's our own. That's the straight. Yeah, that, that's the Twilight Zone. Yeah, the Twilight. yeah. Uh, but the honey okay. part is added to the Twilight Zone. What's the one in well, the dark? Yes. <laughs> in dark. Um, in the dark, dark of night. It's slightly dead of night. Than... I think it's room for one more. Yeah. He's a, he's a bus, isn't it? And then he's a bus conductor in that version. So. Well, since I watched it, but I think that's room for one more. That's where it, I think where it's, that phrase first surfaces, and that's where it's impressed upon culture. <laughs> and Boy, if I'm it. not mistaken, it happens in the story as well that after the story is sort of uh, come to a climax within the story, um, he starts smoking. Uh, in in the bus conductor, am I wrong? Is that does Hugh start smoking? I don't remember that. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, at the so beginning. I remember something like that. Yeah. So um, there is a scene in the the uh, Dark of Night 1945 film. It, it's really interesting the way it's structured because the, there's all these people at the house, and then he says, "Some, I have a." He doesn't say I have a premonition. I dreamt that you were here and you were here. And he's got this weird look on his face the whole time. It's great. Actually, a really great movie in, in some respects. Oh, and by the way, there's also Smee is in there as well, right? Is that the other yes, story? Uh, oh. uh, inexperienced Ghost, the golfing story. That's right. a H.G. Wells tale. That's the comedy one. Mm, where he yeah. says, am I supposed <laughs> to do the passes now? <laughs> it's the one everyone hates was the comedy one but I actually quite like it as a yeah, bit of light yeah. relief it's, especially it's, before you get the venom Chris, Chris dummy horror right. at the end which is, well, it's uh, still pure nightmare fuel the structure the structure of the um, of the film itself though follows the format and the storytelling of the bus conductor original right and there is a scene where after they're having the, their Everybody in the has had their say about what they think of the fact that this guy's dreaming, including the psychoanalyst, right? And then they said, let's have a smoke. And they all get out their cigarettes and they pass them around. Then somebody reaches into the fire and grabs a brand and starts passing it around. And I think, well, that's how, how it was in 1945. Everybody smoked. But even like the teenage girls smoking, right? It's like, it is associated. <laughs> it, it, right, right. It, it is associated with thought. Right, I'm gonna sit down and have a smoke, right? And well, you think yeah, about how Sherlock Holmes, right, when he wants to think, what's he do? He, he closes the blinds and he closes the windows. And he oh. smokes up the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was just watching, rewatching the 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 not so great Prisoner remake, and at one point, number two goes into uh, the shop and he he said and he asks for cigarettes which are forbidden. And they actually find some. He says that he said that the guy asks him well, why he wants them. He says because it helps me think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's a long, at least, uh, tradition in literature and whatnot of that being true, even if it's something that yeah we don't really do now. That's there's a long history of that sort of idea of smoking and thinking going as you said going back to Sherlock Holmes and mm-hmm. probably much earlier. Way yeah, probably way earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, that even happens in that story accessory before the fact. He goes into a pub and starts smoking his pipe to, you know, that it's it's not just a symbol of 
of uh, having had sex, right? They did in the movies with the waves and they're about to have sex or whatever. whatever. Yeah. There's all this symbology, but there's actually some uh, logic behind it. And I think that that's what makes it such a well-crafted story. Benson is not, I don't think, like for the fact that this is a actually quite a famous story and there's many adaptations or narrations of it on YouTube. Um, he's not very well known other than this, I don't think. This story, am I wrong? Map and Lucia are very famous. Uh, well, in certain circles, and those are his comic novels. They're they're wonderful. If P.G. Woodhouse had had a really kind of a mean streak and written these wonderful tales of women who are fighting for supremacy, social supremacy in a village, mm. that's don't you think, Mister Jim Moon? Haven't you? Uh, yes, or? I mean I think he is. Uh, Woodhouse with a mean streak is a very good way of putting it. <laughs> um, well, they're wonderful, but they're just vicious. Um, but they're funny. At this, they're so funny. And um, I came across them when I was in college, maybe, and just loved them. And then it was only later I found out that during his life, he was much more famous for his ghost stories. And those show a lot of variety. And some of the humor I was talking about in, you know, mm-hmm. when fear departed the long gallery or whatever mm-hmm. it's called yeah, um right. is is that kind of a feel the this the sense of the ridiculous that we can all appreciate mm-hmm. so but you have to be a certain kind of book lover to know those stories but mm. but he would be famous for those also when you look around well he's also very well remembered for his ghost stories because i mean kind of um uh for people who are into the mr james and uh h Russell wakefield he's kind of uh, yeah. in between between them but <laughs> you, you know it's kind of on certainly on mr james forums when people talk about other other favorite ghost story writers ef yeah. benson is normally in, in the first couple mentioned yeah. there's one uh, by him that i i really like and i like to think about a lot it's called the horror horn it's uh not a ghost story it's a it's about some hikers who want to hike up one of those alp alpine mountains probably one of the alps <laughs> and uh <laughs> there's um uh, yeah it's it's uh it's called a, subtitles a strange story of the alps in winter and these guys go hiking up there and they they hear rumors about people not coming down from that hike because it's really dangerous but they're like no 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 problem or something and then um it's it turns out that there's like troglodyte civilization inside the hill or inside the mountain. And that's the issue, right? It's not that it's not that, uh, you know, the hike itself is so dangerous or the climb is so dangerous. It's that there's predators at the cave entrance or whatever. And I, I, I think he does have a sense of humor. It even shows up in here. I, I mean, he's very playful in the opening, in the opening frame, right? Or the characters are playful. And mm. feel, mm-hmm. It's not like laugh out loud funny at any point, I don't think. But there's definitely a smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, the fact that he says, well, why, you know, do you like, why are you a ghost hunter or whatever? He's like, I love being frightened. I just love it. Yes. You know. Yeah. Uh, why, of co- why, of course, I like being frightened. I said, I want to be made to creep and creep and creep. Fear is the most absorbing and luxurious of emotions. One forgets all else if one is afraid. It is that all-consuming sort of emotion. Yeah. And, and, and Benson captures that in that story and in what Hugh says here. And, and and then he says, there's room for one more. And so then the one more, it crashed into the bus, burrowing into it as a gimlet burrows into a board. Mm. Okay. 
There's a lot of interesting things in that setup of the story, I think, that mm-hmm. had me actually thinking of, of Lovecraft's like thesis or opening like mm-hmm. axiom in supernatural horror and literature, that there's just certain people that are turned on by this type of fiction, right? The sensitive. I think he calls them the sensitive, right, Jesse? Yep, yep. The, and the sensitivity. And and that they have that conversation, you know, he says, well, the narrator, right, ghosts are just objective experiences, and Hughes disagrees, right? Because he's got this thesis of these two, like, the two holes that line up occasionally in life, right? Usually they don't, but for some people they're bigger, yeah. and they'll line up at various times in one's life, right? There's kind of an astro- astronomical kind of metaphor he's making, right? Like the end of life matches up with with your experience from time to time. If that hole's big enough, and some people it's bigger, so it's kind of like the more sensitive types. And then uh, the narrator is also admits he just likes hearing these stories from people, right? That there's certain. At one point right. he says there's certain people that just yeah. like these types of stories, mm-hmm. right? And, and he kind of encourages you to go on and tell a long those. story. We readers are those people, right? Um, I, I want to read this. This is the other thing that's surprising from the intro, or the frame, I should say. Um, he says, um, and what have you always believed? That these phenomena are purely objective, not subjective, and that one's state of mind has nothing to do with the perception that perceives them, nor have circumstances or surroundings anything to do with them either. And then he cites the case of uh, a haunted house, right? But it's just surprising because um, subjective experience is where we live, right? I, I try to be objective, but I only have certain access to certain angles uh, during certain times of day of certain points of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and objectivity is, is I, I believe, literally impossible. Um, yeah. But he's saying quite the opposite, right? That it's absolutely not subjective. I mean, I aim for objectivity, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere close to it, I don't think. But well, here his story saying, is kind yeah. of proving that from his point of view. I mean, he wasn't yeah, expecting no, that's, any that's of That's the radical claim that he's making, right? And his friend's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it just fits so strangely with the idea, like, let's go to the haunted house because I, I want to be afraid. And it's, yeah, of course that house wasn't haunted because it's all, it's all objective. Huh? <laughs> like that doesn't follow, right? <laughs> um, well, I, I I was thinking of William James actually when I was reading mm, that initially. Mm. You know, this what's what's the book on on religious experiences, right. right? Where you know I don't. It's been so long since I read it, but the thesis is a sort of just that there's certain experiences that certain religious people have that right. people who don't have them are kind of listening out on it, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, if it's kind of like that with the the ghost hunter, right? It doesn't you know if the ghosts are real or not, but mm-hmm. The experience of going hunting ghosts and having those experiences. Someone who doesn't believe in ghosts can't really have those or would experience them in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of just, you're, I don't know. But, but the idea that you are missing out if you're not like seeking out these kinds of uh, experiences or feelings. Well, I kind of had the feeling also, though, I hadn't really thought about it from the point of view of what you're discussing, but. I got the feeling that the friend who's telling the William or uh, Granger is not a believer. And he's like, you like to be scared, right? Mm-hmm. You wanted to find a ghost, right? You wanted this, right? He's like, 
I've had that experience. I'm not sure if I still believe it, but I was curious to go with you on this thing to see because of my previous experience, which I wasn't looking for, didn't welcome. I mean, except thank you, I'm not dead. Yeah. But so it was kind of like he's, you know, with the religious experience, he's the atheist, essentially, who's had yeah. the experience that the religious guy's looking for, essentially. Yeah, and this is Benson's gloss. Like, like that, that's the power of the Red Room by H.G. Wells, right? H.G. Wells says, okay, enough with these stories, okay? <laughs> I'm going to tell this story, and at the end, you're going to see I can do exactly what they're all doing and show you that this is all bunk, right? Mm-hmm. Benson mm-hmm. says... Uh, okay, okay, I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah. I've got this character who's like, I love to be scared. Let's go to a haunted house for the weekend. <laughs> and the other one's like, okay. And then they go, and then nothing happens. And he says, I was. Uh, he says, why, of course I like to be frightened. I said, I want to be made to creep and creep and creep. Fear <laughs> is the most absorbing and luxurious of emotions. One forgets all else if one is afraid. Um, one of my friends, uh, my friend Steen, he loves jumping out of airplanes, you know, with a parachute, uh, because you're so happy to be alive. <laughs> you're so happy, and then, wow. and, and then he says, he says to me, "You got to try it, Jesse." And I'm like, uh, "I'll be too scared." And he says, "That's the point." <laughs> like I you're do like, like to be scared, but not like that. I, I want to like, live, man. I'm already happy to be alive. That's Thank right. you. But yeah. you, you can't feel it until you uh, you experience it, right? Is is his mm. theory? Uh, fear is the most absorbing and luxurious of emotion. One forgets all else if one is afraid. Well, the fact that neither of us saw anything he said confirms what I have always believed, right? Well, not always, right. but since that experience, uh, he's saying the fact that we didn't see any ghosts means that uh, ghostly experiences are real. <laughs> it's a it's a, he is being very playful here, Benson. Um, yeah, doesn't he have yeah. two brothers who are both writers and both uh, really smart? And guys a sister, too? sister oh, too. The sister smart uh, writer as well. Sister wrote something as well. Yeah. Wow, that must have been a, oh, a very right. talkative uh, or re- <laughs> very literary family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I read E.F. Benson also wrote a biography of Queen Victoria, not too long after she died, relatively speaking, because I was seeing all these things pop up about Queen Victoria, you know, the Victoria and Abdul, which refers back to, you know, Mr. Brown or Mrs. Brown and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, everybody's like, and nobody knew about it. They hid it from everyone. I'm like, is that really true? So I went back and found something that seemed like it would be fairly believable from somebody close to the time. And I found his and oh yeah, Abdul gets mentioned. You know, oh, yeah, he was her munchie. He did this. You know, he's not dwelling on it because he's so interested in the politics, which I was mm. wading through. But it was a fascinating book, and I held on to the end just, you know, and the reason I was having to hold on is because he talk about these big political and war-type experiences which were going on and influenced everything. And I wasn't really that interested in it. But he did a great job of it. And his brother, I think, was a co-editor of Victoria's Letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, was criticized AC. for editing the letters heavily to make her into what they wanted. But, you know, anyway. So they wrote uh, all kinds of stuff. The only uh, other Bensons I have on, I don't think I have the sister. I've got an R.H. Benson and an A.C. Benson. I think those are both his, his uh, the E.F. Benson's brothers. And yeah, both of his brothers. Yeah, both wrote one of them stories. a priest as well? Uh, well yeah, R.H. Benson was the clergyman. Right. 
What 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 did the sister write, Misa? I'm trying to look it up. It was on I saw it on Wikipedia earlier today, so I'm I'll, I'll report back when I find okay. it. Okay. <laughs> uh, this this, uh, this story uh, kind of story I don't think is still being written. Do you think it is? At least not in fiction. I don't know of anything super recent. I guess the Stephen King 1408 sort of. Sixth Sense. This kind of story. Um, Sixth Sense is definitely a ghost story. Yeah, you get ghost stories, but everything's like the novels taken over mm. these short yeah, tales. The Binscombe tales are kind of like that. Things, right? Right. I don't know enough about the publishing industry. But the Binscombe tales, right? Those are I current. Oh yes, yes. I mean, there's still a. I mean, I think there's still a thriving market of of ghost stories, you know, out there. Um, <clears throat> and well, just look. Like currently, we've got in the in the movies. You have the Conjuring franchise, the Insidious franchise. Definitely movies. Oh, yeah. Definitely movies. Uh, Paranormal then, Activity. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the Haunting of Hill House miniseries, oh, um, oh, yeah. and there's a follow up to that next year, which is going to riff on Turn of the Screw. Oh. Um, mm. Yeah, but it's, well, it's one of those things. Every everyone oh, always yeah. says these things sort of come in and out of fashion, and they're always saying. Such as you know, there's always these clickbait articles now. Oh, such and such a genre is dying, and actually, it always turns out not to be true. They just yeah. become more popular, then just fade back again. But they're never. There's always an audience there. The same as there's always an audience for horror and SF. It's all. It's just sometimes everyone's banging the drum about a particular movie or book, and suddenly it seems like it's super popular. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually I'm I'm thinking less about the uh, just as a ghost story proper, but as this kind of um, <laughs> I, I guess it can't be a genre because it's it's limited to so so few stories. Um, but the kind of story like the one I mentioned, um, the Algernon Blackwood one, where it's a premonition, um, because I I think that we. I don't. I don't believe that there is a piece of cardboard in front of me, but I think the metaphor well, is true, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I. I. I'm not sure about the other piece of cardboard. I think the other piece of cardboard is, is just the base reality I can't see, and I don't think there's another hole behind it. Um, I don't know. I think there might be. Um, <laughs> it's hard to uh, know, right? <laughs> the sister. The sister is named Maggie. She's an ama- an author and an amateur Egyptologist. Have Have any of you ever had the veils cross and and been to the, seen the other side, or had the other side poke through for you? What a good question. <sighs> yeah, it's hard to well, say. Well, I have. I have. Oh, really? Ooh. I have. Yes. And it was dreams again. Hello, dreams. Yeah. Um, so one night, uh, I dreamt that, um, I was stroking a whale, which to me means good luck. And so I was like, oh, you Did better you remember stroking that. Stroking a werewolf? St- a whale. A whale. A whale. Okay. A- stroking oh. a werewolf is a different symbol. Stroking a whale. <laughs> and then, and then, and, and then, um, I was flying. Like I could see I, my arms were out to the sides. I was flying and then I was in a train and then I was in a car. And between each of those dreams, I woke up and I was like, remember this, this is because you had good luck at the beginning. Mm. Um, hmm. So I wrote them all down, and then and then Christmas happened three days later, and I opened up a present. I was in Egypt at the time, so I opened up this present that came from Canada and was sitting under the tree while I was dreaming, and it was a it was a, a painting, and it had a girl flying in the sky through a cloud that looked like a whale. There was a car in the in the forefront and a train track in the back of it, and it said Dream Traveler. 
Wow. <laughs> Um, I I suggested we were gonna maybe do a show on a book that's uh, set in BC coastal waters, um, mm-hmm. and you might say you said, oh, I have to be on that show because uh, whales are my spirit animal. I didn't realize it was associated <laughs> with this uh, this whole thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, <laughs> it wasn't just like I like whales. <laughs> no. <laughs> Because, you know, whales are cool, but, <laughs> you know. And I would say in, that's a good point. Um, I'd forgotten dream. And, and in dreams, I've had a couple of experiences, which I think are seeing through to that, through that little hole, but not anything that wound up being a premonition in my own life. So, um, yeah, dreams are, of course, the classical, right, <laughs> for <laughs> getting through to the other side or something getting through to you. John mm-hmm. Binscombe's Binscombe Tales, a complete series, and you drop into a story called Another Place. I read I read that one, and that got me the author's attention, who he luckily liked the reading, because I was Good. like, oh, this is just a sample. And uh, <laughs> then later on, he said, oh, well, I wouldn't mind if you read another one. I got some sales based on that, and I was wow. stunned that anybody had even heard it. Um and so I read a Christmas story he has, which is just a he. Most of the books stories in there, and Mr. Jim Moon. It sounded like you'd read them. Um, most of them are just weird tales, but very effective weird tales. Um, oh, they are great fun, aren't they? Amazing. Yes. I don't uh, think I did the Christmas one this year for my for my Patreon show. Oh. Goodwill to most men. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's when he said that. I went, okay, I have it too. So, or um, so I read it. Um, and it's a short but wonderful one. But um, And there's one about a bus stop that is one of the most creepy, horrible stories you will ever read. Oh, it's amazing. But this one is the first one. And it's of somebody who's kind of living the premonition thing. I don't know how to describe it, but it's of that sort. But it's a premonition that we can't really see happen yet. So it's it's really a great story. If you care to find the book, um, it's all good. Or there's my my reading is free, of course. Yeah, so. I'm gonna check. Yeah. I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, I, I probably heard it years ago, but it said 2014. So yeah, that's a long time ago. So. My memory is terrible. I was thinking, uh, Misa now has to read um, Moby Dick. Because. I have read Moby Dick. Okay, good. Okay, because that. Of course, uh, I've read Moby Dick. Come on, Jesse. Okay, well, uh, spirit animal. Were you, spirit are you animal. not paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> An um, angry spirit animal at that. Triumphant angry spirit. Okay, animal. triumphant. That's okay. Good one. Oh, in between that eight hours of um, of uh, trying to find the pictures for the bus conduct, it wasn't quite eight hours, but it was a lot. It was a lot of the day. Way too much of the evening. I I tweeted. Um, uh, oh, this is from chapter thirty nine, I think. Of yeah, chapter thirty nine of Moby Dick. A laugh's the wisest and easiest answer to all that's queer. And come, what will one's comfort always left? That unfailing comfort is it's all predestinated. Here's <laughs> and then I, I made us. I don't know. Dot dot dot. Here is a carcass. I know not all that may be coming, but be it what it will, I'll go to it laughing. And then I add the last two words, by Crom. <laughs> because it, there is a kind of, um, a, a kind of uh, sort of melancholic mirth to um, Moby Dick. Uh, 
And it, it just sounded like a quote from Robert E. Howard, you know. <laughs> Um, a little, maybe a little more highfalutin, more Shakespearean, but he he can he can do that as well, especially in the Solomon Cain, right? He used the thous and all that. I like, I really dig, I dig that writing so good. And that chapter's like, I think maybe 400 words long. It's really short. <laughs> Great stuff. Are we uh, approaching finished? Room for one more, Jesse? No. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Paul. What you got? <laughs> no, no. That, that, that was, I, I, I think, I think, I think we've come to a relatively good conclusion here. It's, it's, it's a really, it's, it, it's a story. Well, why do you think we like to retell? Oh, why do you think we like to retell the story over and over and over again? What, what's the appeal that it just keeps getting remade? Hmm. Because well, you ca- maybe you'll story. catch a break. It's a good story. I, I think symmetry is incredibly important in stories, right? Like the the fact that it 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 explains stuff at the end instead of like it brings it all together. I was thinking if you cut off the film, like uh, I was listening to Mr. Jim Moon's uh, description of of what happens in the Twilight Zone version, where she's in hospital, she gets better, she leaves the hospital, she goes to the airport. Uh, and she goes off to Miami, or right, or she's planning to go off to Miami. If you just cut it off right as she's she's going off to Miami, the story makes no sense. Right? <laughs> it's completely useless as a story. It's just it's just like somebody telling you like an anecdote. Like, yeah, I got into a really big beef with somebody over parking in the parking lot, and it's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> that has no value to me. But if you had, you know, and it turns out that the guy I was talking to was a ghost, and we had met at the that parking lot a week before oh my god right <laughs> it comes we're always looking for meaning and this one uh takes what are you know we do get senses and some oftentimes we get a sense of uh something's wrong and we don't know how to articulate it uh to explain why we don't think something's cool so uh, a good example, might, or maybe a bad example, might be Joe Joe Biden sniffing people. <laughs> See the compilation of him sniffing little girls' hairs, and, uh, and there's a lot of him touching men as well. Um, but after a certain point, you're saying, "Look, I I don't know what is uh, setting his policies aside. This is really creepy." And then people like, and I'm I'm thinking it is really creepy. And then somebody made the point like. This is the kind of thing where if you're in a meet, if you're meeting somebody and they come over to your house and you tell your kid to go hug that person, even though the kid has never met that person before, um, and the kid doesn't want to, and you say you must, that's a kind of situation where you're setting the kid up to uh, not trust their own instincts. And mm-hmm. we don't we don't start with basic premises, I don't think. I think we start with feelings, and then we try and figure out how those feelings can be justified. Or are explainable, maybe the other way around, right? And so this is a story where, you know, I have certain th- feelings something's going to happen, and then it does, or it doesn't. But when it does, uh, I don't think it's premonition exactly, because I've had, I remember all the times it didn't happen, too. But it's nice to be confirmed in this grand way, I think. And that's the sort well, of playing the- into our. Yeah? There's an issue of, of context here because I was thinking about the the room for one more because that's how I always 
thought this story went. But the, we talked before about the language he uses, right? Room for one more inside, just room for one inside, right? Mm-hmm. Which if our if a hearse driver says that to you, <laughs> kind of playful, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. But if he I says mean, room for one more, that's really straight up weird and bizarre. Of course, if either of these from a bus uh, conductor is perfectly fine, mm-hmm. right? Or if he's in an elevator or something. Right. But the room for one more from a purse driver is you're talking to a psycho, I would think. <laughs> no, somebody's <laughs> having a good laugh at work. That's <laughs> Yeah, room for one like, you know, there's there's you know how was it originally said again, room for one more or just just room for one or something, whatever. You know, that's a little playful, but it's not quite as just weird. Just room for one inside, sir. Yeah, room for one inside. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we didn't talk about the fact that it's 1130, and he's like, this couldn't possibly be true. Mm. I start putting together the oh, timeline, mm-hmm. and that goes back to what Misa was saying about the um, Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. because, you know, the spirits did it all in one night. And then you've got this, where he's like, this can't possibly be, but of course it needs to be 1130, because that's the time he's going to get on the bus, and that's kind of reinforces his, oh, no, this is a hearse. You know, this is, I, I don't know what's going on, but this is super creepy and it's not happening. And so there's that, which also is not just somebody going, oh, it's deja vu, it's whatever. No, this is something out of the ordinary, so it is a premonition. So despite all the times it may not have happened before or it has happened since, this one is unusual because it's metaphysical, mm-hmm. or if I use that word right. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. here's the nail in the coffin. What would Philip K. Dick say about this story? <laughs> because this is the sort of thing that he he actually literally had happen to him, right? The pink beam and all that crazy stuff. Um, well, I don't know. Was there a face in the sky? Yeah, there was a that was a different that was a different incident. But yes, there was a giant metallic face in the sky. Yeah. Or maybe maybe it's the same incident. I can't tell. Well, before all that, he invents the the precog, of course, right? Right. I, I don't know if he invents it exactly, but I think he's the first to use the term. term. Yeah. Which I saw in King. I saw King using the term precog mm-hmm. in one of his stories. I think it's in the Dark Tower. He uses this term precog. And I was wondering where he got it from. Because I don't know if he got it from King or he got it from Dick. I think he must have because Dick, Dick, it's a theme with him that goes on and on, right? He uses it even when he's not, it's not the main focus. And mm-hmm. and the idea of precognition is very much at play in his his. His thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the way his precogs work is there's always kind of probabilities. It's probabilistic. Well, that's in one story, but but um, no, it, it, then, you know he changes his theory every time. Too. Yeah, every time he writes a new story, he comes up with a new theory <laughs> to explain. He's, that's what his whole exegesis is about, right? Is him trying to ex- rationalize his experience. Yeah, but he gets into like Allegro and the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff too. Right. He kind of throws it all together into a soup. Probably not meant to be published, uh, and um, and yet yeah. a sign of uh, yeah. Someone has sort of the opposite of this, where it's all coherent, right? It, or at least mm-hmm. coheres in a certain way. That's, it, it, but something profoundly like a profound human experience that people have, and uh, they they try and understand and figure out. Something pointing to something real, but what it is exactly is not clear. I guess we're done.
consensus says there's no room for any more. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs> Here I thought, may everybody's online. I should call them early, just just for fun. But I, I was busy studying, so. Oh. Oh, okay. Um, I've been having serious problems as usual with Skype. Um, I uh, the show I just put together for Monday. There's a like a buzz that comes in. I thought, oh, it's Paul's squeaky chair, but I think it's not. I think it's my voice. Just my my, square, my chair is not that squeaky. I got a different oh, chair. That's it's what I'm so saying. Squeaky. I was thinking, did Paul get a squeaky chair and I just didn't notice again? I'm like, no. I think there's something wrong with a recorder or something. So hopefully this is not. Uh, uh, and then I recorded on Wednesday, um, and the show just broke for no reason. Oh, no. Luckily, I spotted it. And uh, like about a second or so after, I guess it happened. So I I just, you know, got Eric to say what he was saying again and stitched. uh, Well, I'm going to get Scott to stitch it together. Oh, my God. Lots of lots of premonitions. So hopefully this is not uh, going to be a cursed (laughs) episode. Those were your glimpses into what's coming for you. Oh, no. No, they were all breaking up. Won't happen. I'd rather take a flight to uh, explosion. I'd be (laughs) better than. Well, we've been using uh, what is it? Google Chat. Yeah. I realize they're the antichrist to you, but I'm just saying it doesn't seem to work. I just invested so much time in making the system really good, and you know there are other ways of doing it, recording through video. By the way, Paul, um, we had a break. Yes. Um, and you sent me your file. It only recorded your mm-hmm. end, but luckily I only needed your end. <laughs> it only recorded my end. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh That's my God, weird. if I Should had had done to that. rely Should on that completely, it, it, I stitched it together because it was, um, it was, uh, just your, your part. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of trouble. That's Anyways, ridiculous. it is getting ridiculous. Um, Anyways, uh, I, I, I was thinking, like, am I going crazy or am I just getting really obsessive about hating on stuff? And I'm like, no, actually, it's not me going crazy <laughs> because uh, I see it everywhere. Like, uh, there, did you guys see this CBC story about um, Apple uh, and what? repairing and recovering data from phones? It was on no. the, oh yes, I did. Yeah, on the national, mm. right? So mm. they went to visit a couple of YouTubers. I watched last year. They did a guy named um, Rossman who fixes laptops and stuff, and is always fighting with Apple. And then this year they went to visit another lady in upstate New York who um, who does data recovery. And what happens is you go to Apple uh, support on the website and say my phone is. Uh, fell in the toilet. Um, we have some really important pictures on there. Is there any way to get those off? And the Apple support website says, no, there isn't. And the people who do the, um, you know, like get on there and get points to get, I don't know, Apple discounts or whatever, will say, no, there isn't. And anybody who says contrary uh, will have their comment removed 
the whole thread can be removed. <gasps> and and bastards. They they'll kick you off. Um and it's like straight up lies. Like they are straight up lying to you in order to like they say it's impossible to recover data off of a of a damaged phone um unless you were using iCloud, in which case you can get it from iCloud, right? And uh. that is or you back it up on iTunes. But that's actually false, and they're lying about it. But because they own the website, and that's the number one search people, you know, you got a phone, you're not an expert on this stuff. You go in there. So I had this exact conversation on Twitter with uh, Skype. I saying, isn't isn't it possible to do this and that? And it turns out, like after uh, I don't know a lot of back and forth, that there are things they're not allowed to say. Like yeah, there are. Oh my gosh! It's so evil, man. Putting people <laughs> in the position of doing this, and oh my god, it's it's getting really bad. So it's not me going crazy. It's me, uh, sort of finding out that I'm not the only one who's going crazy. Everybody thinks they're going well, crazy. This they're is gaslit. Yeah, this is everything all shaking out this way. For example, I'm getting ready Monday. I'm going to have to call and try to talk to the receptionist at my doctor's office mm-hmm. because her nurse doesn't really respond to the uh, voicemails I leave. Oh, but no. now they started using this Carla system. It's all automated. And they'll they'll if you put an app on your phone, you can ask any medical questions you want. Oh, and I'm like... God. Oh, you can just forget that. I've been reading the newspapers, guys. I don't really need anyone collecting my questions about my intimate details. So, but you can't, they're not responding to anything else. And I'm like, I wrote my doctor a freaking letter and she didn't respond. And I'm like, do I have to go down and get an appointment? You know, it's that kind of thing where it's the level of frustration where, um, you know, there's there's for one thing the thing you're talking about, but then there's the other thing where people are trusting the stuff too much and going, yeah. we're not a doctor, we're a retailer, yeah, kind of thing. Well, that's, I'm like, no thanks. That's what Skype has a, as an, a default, right? Oh yeah, you absolutely can record, but it's video, <laughs> and we give it to you after, right? And you can only get it from us, and uh, uh, yeah. you, it only lasts for a certain amount of time. And that is not what I'm hoping to use. I'm hoping to have it recorded on my end, that it's my file. And yeah, I, you know, probably they're doing this for their benefit, right? Because they get to have a copy of everything. But <laughs> that's not good. I, I just want to do what I need to do. But this is, this is, it's a product, right? That has been having features added to it for years and years and years that no, like, you, yeah, sure, you can use video for Skype, but why? Not It's not the most important thing, but that's what they're pushing, and it's it's just terrible. Um, the, there's a whole Reddit thread I found that's like people, because they forced upgraded my last version, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to have to switch and try and get all my contacts back, you know, to go, like, that's the thing, Julie, is uh, I'm going to have to get Evan to start using Google. <laughs> Google, whatever, right? <laughs> I don't even know how to use it myself. I'm going to have to get him to do it, and then I have to get you to do it, and then I have to get everybody to do it. Well, Scott does it, so he can tell you all about it. Uh, right, but I have like 60 people I do, do contacts oh, with. Well, right? So that's a lot of teaching. And, uh, and yeah. It, it's, it's just... That's, it's yeah. Skype is being awful. Yeah. Because they're forcing you away because they're being so proprietary. Yes. Indeed. They're awful. They're the worst. They are the worst. It's true. 
All right. Can so, I can I say one little bit of good news that I just found out this week, which is Ted Chang has a new story collection coming yes. out. Oh. Yes. Called if you listen to our latest podcast, I, Julie, I you wait, would know wait. that we talked about that. I, it's sitting on my iPod. I have no time. <laughs> Speaking of old school it's iPod. Three, it's only three stories, I think, but one of them is totally new, right? Well, they only list three in that description. No, no, no. There's more than that. Is there? Okay. But there's one totally new one. Yeah. But I think it's a bunch of the... Yeah, well, for one thing, I've been wanting Exhalation for a really long time anyway. Indeed. What a great story. But, uh... Yeah. All right. Yeah. um, Oh, yeah, because here's a review on Amazon... Mm -hmm. So one, two, three, four. Oh, the life cycle of software objects, which I've got anyway, but that's in there. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Wow. So it's eight, eight that have been previously done and one new one, I think. So it's a real collection. That's terrific. Yeah, just just FYI. Oh, no, that's that's really, that is genuinely good yeah. news. Yeah. All okay. right, uh, I'm done. We got a lot of people here. I'm. I, I don't want to fight with Julie. So Julie, don't step into this, okay? Um, it's not based on uh, honor. <laughs> it's based just, on seniority, okay? So it's gonna be Jesse. I totally get that. I'm thinking it's Paul. Then I'm thinking uh, it's Misa now. Really? Oh, no, no, Mr. Jim Moon, Misa, and then Julie. Okay. What about Evan? Uh, yeah, when am shit. I? Evan's last. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the monkey's paw show. Uh, and Evan wasn't in on that one. I'm like looking no. at the same, uh, the wrong line. Okay, so Jesse, Paul, Julie. Wait, wait, wait. Jesse, Paul, Misa, Julie. No, Jesse. No, Je- Jesse. Look, <laughs> Jesse, Paul, Jim, yeah. Misa, Julie, Evan. What Paul said. Which- <laughs> Evan, nice Julie here. Nice to meet you. I listened to your Louisa May Alcott Little Women series and was super impressed. Oh, thanks. You're the yeah. only one who listened to that, maybe. <laughs> I'm the only one who's read it three times. So, you know, uh, but I really like the wrong it. books if he wants to be popular. Talking about Jefferson's <laughs> letters, and I just started some uh, to, to Tocqueville. I'm like, yeah. Okay, I I didn't even know this guy was anything to do with the United States. I don't know anything about. What? Him. I, I mean, I heard the name. But I don't know anything about him. He gets everything right. It's 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 amazing. Well, that's why I'm actually interested in those because I'm like, oh, good. Then I don't have to read them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you sum up so nicely. That was Little Women was my test. Yeah, there, so, there was another. Uh, like I I was really. I think it was just because of the Library of America volumes I had. I was struggling to to get into some women writers. I've read a lot, but like I had a bunch of the Southern ones, like uh, yeah. the Colors and O'Connor, but I, for some reason I just didn't want to do those. <laughs> I didn't know what to say about them. Speaking of yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I had Alcott, and I I have another one I, I really, on um, Cather, because I wanted to be Oh, West. yeah. I was trying to be diverse. I'm like, I need a Midwesterner, and so I went to Cather. Yeah, I, I had so much fun with that series, too. I saw that because I read um, the one about the bishop, um, the archbishop. Oh, crud. And really loved it. Yeah. Anyway, I did some of the early stuff, the pioneers. Yeah. My Antonia, yeah. Anyway, so I'll be getting back to you. It's just, uh, you know, I 
I have a lot of listening, so and not much time. Yeah, I, I understand. But I, I really, I did want to say that because I try out a lot of people who, who talk about books, and I don't keep very many of them. No, and yeah, you're, but you're a keeper. I mean, I really, really appreciated you. You had such thoughtful comments, and um, I just liked your take on it a lot. So you know, thank you. Oh, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, I appreciate it. You're welcome. I wanted to yeah. uh, uh, point you, Evan, at this guy named T.S. Dribbling. Have you heard of him? I, I tweeted, uh, might have tweeted about you, or tweeted at you about him and uh, Brian. There's this book I found called uh, The Web of the Sun, and it's a South. It's set in South America. Uh, there's a like a hidden valley of people, uh, lost yeah. in this book, and uh, the uh, I, I pointed. I think Paul, you saw this. He, after he writes about South America, he actually got enough money to go to South America. Yeah, I, I saw that. That was hilarious. But, like... um, he, he wrote, uh, he wrote uh, some uh, very prize-winning book, which might be the one I'm about to think of. Um, this called Birthright. Have you heard of this book? It got turned into a movie twice. Um, it's, it's about mm-hmm. uh, black people in the southern U.S., right? Not a big surprise that there would yeah. be a book about that, but it got turned into a movie twice, once in silent and once in, uh, I think, 38 or so. And uh, it, it mentions it in the beginning of the Web of the Sun that it's being serialized in the Century uh, uh, magazine. And from what I gather in the trailer, it's about this white white man who owns the town. Uh, he's, he's sent uh, some random black kid off to... Uh, harvard to become a lawyer and when the kid comes back uh, after graduation he says i want you to be my heir um but i don't want you to marry a black woman and <laughs> i think the, the the premise is he's it's his illegitimate son oh. um but is this Oscar show made the film I'm, i don't think i'm looking at it now yeah it could be um there's two versions there's a, a, a black and white well they're both black and white there's a silent yes yeah, so it's a talking remake of a silent film right and uh, i just thought this is a this guy's normally known as a science fiction writer and here he's mm-hmm. dealing with something i never heard of this book or i mean i'd heard of stribbling before i there's one story called the green splotches i think that i read of his mm-hmm. But he's a super early science fiction guy who's, you know, dealing with some mainstream stuff and then it's completely being forgotten. I, I didn't realize there hadn't even been a movie that starred any black people uh, that early, uh, let alone Yeah, twice. a lot of those are lost, too. Yeah. Like, this guy, Oscar Michaud, he, he did a lot. Uh, and some of those movies are just, like, rediscovered, I think. Mm-hmm. He, he did a Conjure Woman movie at some point. It's, I think that's lost too. House behind the cedars, he did. So cool. Anyways, I, I thought that that was a, an interesting find, and um, that that uh, science fiction story is 1922. It's quasi mm-hmm. science fiction, but it sounds it sounds really cool because it's it's uh, it's sort of in the tradition of Herland, and uh, there's a bunch of those where they go to South America and they find some you know hidden utopia. The premise for Web of the Sun, Julie, you might like this, is uh, mm-hmm. everybody uh, in the valley is is all cool and everything. It's a satire, apparently, very subtle satire, at least uh, one reviewer said. But uh, they're everything's normal and they're all cool and everything, except they their breeding cycle is incredibly short. So mm-hmm. you're born and then you you're basically ready to have babies like at three or something. Wow, and, and then 
all the women are super fertile. So they they're sacrificing the babies to keep because they're stuck in a like a little valley, uh, right? Um, so they sacrifice babies no. uh, to this um, uh, place where they're taken up to heaven, right? Um, and the secret is it's a giant trapdoor spider that like <laughs> eats the babies. Oh, no. <laughs> Isn't that, oh, that no. hence the web of the sun is like. Wow, it sounds so cool. Like it, I just a lost book. I, I want somebody to read it for me and tell me whether uh, I should. <laughs> it does sound horrifying. So someone should read it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Evan seems to be able to read incredibly quickly, right? I spent a week working on a 15-minute story here. Because <laughs> yeah. we're not all digging into every possible reference. Um, and you do that kind of thing. Yeah, I just do things so thematically. I can zip through them. Well, when you get to Herland or something, maybe. If, you, if you're going to do Herland. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm done with Philip Dick, so I need some other... I yeah, to, I, I think, I think Herland other will be a really fun one, because I, I, re, I really enjoyed doing that one. And there's a bunch like that I, that I'm failing to remember. These. You know, Heather at Craft... I've been free to, to do a lot more science fiction reading, stuff I haven't... Got to like I finally read Red Mars. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah. See, that's I don't uh, have the other two. That's a book that's too big. Even though there's an audiobook available, that's a book that's too big for me. (laughs) Just like oh, that's a yeah. It's 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 a lot going. It's 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 a bit long. I would say Herland. Heather at Craftlit did that and had her father read the book, and he really did a good job on it. So you've got. Of course, her commentary, but then the reading is all there, too. So if anybody wants to listen to the audio, you can easily skip her commentary if you don't want it. I'm, I'm so, sure I had um, an audiobook of it. I just don't remember who did the narration. Yeah. But I got that. Oh, it was it was like um, there's another guy who did that. He was publishing. Oh, it's Morris. William Morris. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the exact mm-hmm. same thing. He's got his own zine. zine. It's a, it was a newspaper slash magazine that he's publishing all by himself, writing all the articles. Right. That's how uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman did it too. She had her own like oh, magazine, right. and she—that was the only place that story was the novel was published into like the seventies, which is crazy because it's a really interesting good story, really like science fiction story. It's crazy mm-hmm, that it was mm-hmm. hidden that long. Anyway. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know how much time everybody has. Paul's probably recording three podcasts today. <laughs> and his game. I actually don't have gaming this week. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Uh, Evan, Evan's got a podcast, so we got to hurry. Okay. All right. Oh. All right. I'm Jesse. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> wait, wait. Let me get the recorder started. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> she wants the introduction order again. Remind me, please. Oh shit. Oh, that's <laughs> so I had to write down who I was behind. Oh, okay. So it's it's Jesse, Jesse, Paul. Jim, Jim, my sub, Julie Ebbett. Yes. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> I'm writing it down. <laughs> Even though I'm first, it's easy for me. Okay, here we go. 